Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Darren Dochuk, and he published a book in 2019. The title of the book is Anointed with Oil, How Christianity and Crude Made Modern America. Fascinating book. I was just reading through the finishing chapters this morning, and this is not his first book. He also has published From Bible Belt to Sunbelt, Plain Folk Religion, Grassroots Politics, and the Rise of Evangelical Conservatism, published 2010. He also has written Sunbelt Rising, The Politics of Space, Place, and Religion, and Region, that was 2011. Also in 2014, American Evangelicalism, George Marsden and the State of American Religious History. Also Faith in the New Millennium, The Future of Religion and American Politics, 2016. And God's Businessman, Entrepreneurial Evangelicals in Depression and War, 2017. And he's coming out with a book in 10 days, October 15, 2021. Title of that book, that sounds like a very timely uh, title, is Religion and Politics Beyond the Culture Wars, New Directions in a Divided America. So I'm delighted to have Dr. Dochuk here. And as you can tell from the titles of his books, his research deals primarily with the United States in the long 20th century, with the emphasis on the intersections of religion, politics, and rising influence of American West and Sunbelt southwest in national life and he teaches courses on u.s religious history political history american society in the 60s and 70s and the cold war period and the politics and culture of energy oil in particular so uh, i'm delighted to have him. so dr dochuk are you there i am here william thanks uh for the introduction and it's great to be with you awesome well thanks for agreeing to the interview for people i mean you have a long cv can you talk about your background i know you're from canada and you teach at Notre Dame, and what led you to write this book, Anointed with Oil? For sure, and uh, thanks for right digging into uh, into my roots. Uh, I make uh, no apologies for kind of wearing it on my sleeve. Uh, I grew up in Alberta, Canada, uh, coming of age really in the 1980s, which, uh, as I say in the book, for uh, the North American oil patch uh, in general was quite difficult, whether you're living in Texas or, in my case, in Alberta. And uh, so, you know, uh, just kind of, I guess, absorbed uh, the politics of religion and oil. Uh, Alberta is the Texas of Canada, if you will. It is uh, not just an oil patch. It's also the most conservative religious and political uh, province of Canada. So while I didn't know it at the time, uh, I, I was absorbing that. And uh, as a scholar uh, doing much work on religion and politics in the Western U.S., uh, it occurred to me that uh, Alberta deserves to be integrated uh, in, in our stories as well. So that's kind of the personal angle. And, and this book on religion and oil allowed me to kind of revisit my roots a bit. Uh, thrill for me was to be able to go back to Alberta after publication of the book and, and give a number of public talks and lectures. And the politics of oil remains very heated in Alberta, uh, as, again, uh, is the case elsewhere in North America. Uh, I guess the scholarly angle here, the, the reason I got kind of turned on to this project, I spent a lot of time, as you uh, stated earlier, writing about uh, the Southwest, writing about the rise of evangelical conservatism in Southern California, especially uh, from the 30s to the 1980s. And uh, it just seemed, uh, and, and most of the subjects in the book are Texas and Oklahoma transplants who moved to Southern California during the Depression and World War II. And I track their kind of religious and political uh, kind of institution building in the post-World War II period. And, 
you know, everywhere I turned, it seemed to be a, a powerful oil man, um, oil man who was helping fund a ministry or a church, uh, or, you know, even geographically, you know, there was a church steeple uh, on one corner and turned the other way and you'd see an oil derrick. And so it occurred to me that what if we bring these two entities sprawling in their own right together uh, in conversation? And what does that tell us about uh, modern American politics? And what does that tell us about modern American society writ large? And so uh, that was kind of my aha moment uh, as a scholar. And, and uh, I committed to the project. And we can talk more about different directions that I went in with the book. Uh, suffice to say, I had started with this kind of follow uh, the money narrative, like how does big oil fund big religion? Uh, and that certainly is a, a key part of the book. But I found myself drawn to other questions as well. Uh, perhaps most important and again, personal to me is just what is it like to grow up on an oil patch? Uh, how does one's proximity to oil help shape the way you work and play, but also worship? And uh, how is religious culture itself grounded in the soil of a place saturated with crude? And uh, so that that's how I got interested in the book. And uh, I went for it and have spent a number of years researching uh, and writing it. And uh, in many ways, it was a labor of love. Yeah, it's really a great book, fascinating book. But maybe we can just start from where the inception was of how this this substance oil became something of great value. Maybe you can talk about its beginnings in the U.S., Pennsylvania, and some of the characters involved. Sure. And, uh, you know, it's, it's debatable. I'll, again, bring my Canadian background here to bear. There, there's some debate whether oil uh, was discovered in uh, large enough quantities to make it a, a commodity, uh, a hot commodity on the market in the mid-19th century, uh, whether that happened in southern Ontario or in western Pennsylvania. Uh, but for our purposes here, uh, in the late 1850s, early 1860s, uh, oil was chased after by wildcatters in western Pennsylvania. There was a sense that uh, crude existed there. There were these, uh, again, going back to uh, native tribes in the region, there was a record of, of this kind of mysterious uh, resource uh, along the creeks of western Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, at that, at that juncture, uh, another source of oil was drying up, and that was whaling. Uh, and so there was all the more impetus uh, and more need for an entrepreneurial spirit among this rising class of American businessmen, many of them located in New York along the East Coast, to go find another source that could be used for illumination, for heat, uh, and, 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 and lubrication, and of course, uh, down the road, of course, uh, what it would mean for fuel as well, its most important application. So uh, during the Civil War, uh, oil is pursued and found uh, in Western Pennsylvania, and that really would be the epicenter of oil exploration and production and refining uh, for the rest of the 19th century. Uh, from there, and we can take the story to the West, but from there, uh, oil exploration would move west of the Mississippi River uh, and open up really a whole nother chapter in uh, the life and times of, of petroleum in American life. And it really kind of, some of these characters really started off there, the names that we know, Rockefeller. Um, can you talk about the difference between independent and aggregated oilmen and the, the tension between them? And then how the expression of their Christian worldview influenced what they wanted to do and what they did with the profits of the oil? Well, you've identified really a, 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 the driving kind of 
tension, and, and I'd like to think it's the dramatic tension of the book. Uh, you know, this book covers a lot of ground uh, moving from the late 1850s to the present day. And so that, that's a long time period. Uh, it covers uh, a, you know, a wide expanse of geography with uh, focus on, the nor on North America, but also moving globally. Uh, so how to keep that all together was, was a challenge from the beginning. And uh, I did not have to force the issue to see these two different sectors of oil uh, as uh, kind of the primary subjects in the story of oil and religion uh, in, in, in our modern era. How so? Uh, well, uh, as I suggested earlier, the kind of first wave of oil exploration is carried out by wildcatters, uh, kind of fiercely independent small producers uh, who embrace kind of the speculative, daring nature of oil exploration at this time. They move into un, uh, kind of chartered territory and uh, with their senses and with all their kind of devices, including spiritualist devices, hunt for crude uh, and try to determine where it exists uh, in, in, again, below, uh, below, below the land. And so it, it's a bit of a free-for-all for that first decade, the 1860s. Uh, the American kind of legal code allows for this kind of rule of capture. Uh, maybe if you've seen uh, There Will Be Blood, the movie of uh, 2008, I believe, uh, you know, you, this, this pursuit of crude could be very violent in its own right. And it, it allowed for the pursuit by any individual to go after and drain uh, subterranean pools at, at an astonishing rate. That was highly wasteful. So along comes Ro John D. Rockefeller Sr. in the 1870s, uh, 1880s, of course, is going to take over the oil industry. Uh, and he represents kind of this new kind of more uh, uh, bureaucratic, bureaucratic uh, kind of Weberian approach to oil exploration, one that tries to contain, tries to centralize the industry and tries to bring rationale and order to it. Uh, and so these two sides, these fiercely independent oilmen and the Rockefellers of the world are going to compete and clash throughout the 19th century and then into the 20th century. And, and why does the wildcatter rise again? Uh, it's because it's the wildcatters who primarily are going to move west, pushed out of Western Pennsylvania by Rockefeller. And in 1900 and years forward are gonna achieve their own kind of independent wealth in Texas, Oklahoma, and California. The rest of the 20th century is really the story of uh, a kind of an ascendant wildcat capitalism in oil that can compete with the Rockefellers and broader major oil companies that are integrated uh, and that have a, 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 a greater kind of global presence. So those are the two sides of oil. And I can elaborate on how that uh, affects life in the church as well. But I'll, I'll let you steer us in, in the next uh, towards that. Well, I think well, the, what Rockefeller did is he staked his claim on uh, on going to what uh, he was actually going to search for the oil. He was going to refine it. So he became a refiner, but also was against these wildcatters and put things in place to benefit and control pricing and keep uh, and get rid of competition, too. Can you talk about those early? I mean. He also was in Cleveland. He was, uh, I think, a Baptist, if I remember correctly, but very much involved in church as well as Lyman Stewart, some of George Bissell, these characters. They're all very religious. Maybe we can talk about how these characters' religion influenced this view of this new burgeoning uh, resource and how their religion influenced the hunt for it and what they did with the money. 
For sure. So, uh, you know, just briefly outlining these two sectors of oil, the independent uh, producer and the majors uh, represented by the Rockefellers, right? We're, we're, we're dealing with two different emphases, the small producers really most interested in exploration and production. Uh, Rockefeller smartly recognizes that uh, it's in refining where one can really truly gain control of the industry itself. And, and you know, throughout the 1870s, early 1880s, he's going to push out all of his competition in refining in Cleveland, but also along the eastern seaboard. So that really is going to be his power base. And the philosophy here, again, is to, to uh, push out competition to centralized operations and to make it more efficient. Uh, and in some ways, I guess what we have here, as I suggest in the book, is is kind of two kind of sparring spirits of capitalism. Again, back to Max Weber, who really emphasized the the one trajectory of the Rockefellers, and that's the way capitalism itself would kind of reorganize itself and become more bureaucratic and efficient as time wore on. I'm arguing that the the wildcat spirit of speculative capitalism also lives on, especially in oil. These two sides represent two different kind of approaches to Christianity and Protestantism, especially although Catholicism is part of this story as well. Uh, and through the book, I trace how this competition in the industry also fuels competition between uh, two classes of churchmen. The Rockefellers, very ecumenical. Uh, he's devout uh, Baptist, of course, but uh, his son, especially John D. Rockefeller Jr., uh, will remain devoutly Protestant, but all the more eager to stretch kind of the arm, uh, the reach of American Protestantism onto global scales and to build a, a larger international ecumenism, very much representative of his approach and his family's approach to oil, to frame a big umbrella under which uh, competing sections can come together for one purpose. Meanwhile, the wildcat side is, is again, this highly kind of Pentecostal, highly evangelical approach to Christianity which embraces the libertarian spirit of the age uh, witnessed in Wildcat Oil uh, that is more speculative, that is more kind of in tune with the mysteries of the natural and the supernatural. Uh, and as that moves west uh, to Texas, Oklahoma, it's really going to take root in that region. And what we see today, I think, you know, kind of a, a more radicalized evangelicalism is in no small part kind of an extension of this fiercely independent uh, localized uh, wildcat Christianity that will uh, sustain itself throughout the entire century. So, so these guys, uh, Rockefeller and his group, Standard Oil, kind of uh, makes gets rid of all the competition in Pennsylvania. So, these characters to be independent go to Texas, California. Can you explain their growth and what happened in Texas and how the oil, the next kind of uh, step in the oil generation? economy grew in Texas? A, a lot of luck, uh, but a lot of perseverance and uh, a lot of determination on the part of these small producers redefines, really remaps American uh, oil and industry uh, in the 20th century. Uh, you know, the running joke in the 1890s, uh, it was claimed that uh, John Archbold, uh, CEO uh, in Standard Oil, joked that uh, he would drink every gallon of oil west of the Mississippi, and this is how sure he was that it really didn't exist in any significant proportions. Of course, he'd be uh, proved wrong quickly in the 1890s, uh, forced out of western Pennsylvania because of the Rockefeller monopoly. Uh, thousands of smaller oilmen, small oil producers, 
move west uh, looking for crude. And, you know, again, many of them are amateur geologists. They read the land, they sense the land in ways that we would not consider scientific today. Uh, in fact, they shunned some of the early petroleum geologist wisdom uh, and preferred instead to go hunting for crude uh, with, with, again, spiritualist devices, as you might look for water, for instance, with divining rods and such. Uh, many were devout evangelical Protestantism in their beliefs and looked to the Bible and looked to their own ability to pray for success to steer them forward. And uh, lo and behold, here they are going to succeed on a brilliant scale uh, in Southern California, but especially at the turn of the century in Texas, uh, Spindle Top will be the first strike along the shores of the Gulf. And uh, it is kind of this, the profits of Wildcat Petroleum that are going to spark this revival, if you will, in oil and essentially re uh, again, redefine the American oil industry itself. Uh, all of the energies of ex exploration and production and refining and transportation will shift to the Southwest at that juncture. It's there that these small producers have already a foothold before the Rockefellers can appear. Uh, and that is going to give them the leverage they need to compete both in oil and in uh, kind of uh, the realm of the church uh, to define what the 20th century is going to look like. Uh, for American life. And there will also, of course, be global repercussions of this. Uh, Texas, for the first 50 years of the 20th century, will become really the center of global oil. Uh, and uh, again, these small producers are going to benefit mightily because of that. Right. So you see this new cast of characters. You talk about this character, Patillo Higgins, as the prophet of Spindletop, moving and chasing oil, this kind of wildcatting person. And so you see this happening in California as well. And you, the, you some people that uh, names that might be familiar is the Pew family. So you see this, uh, the Rockefellers are monopolizing, using a lot of uh, covering up distribution or, or handling distribution from railroads. So they were kind of uh, getting rid of competition through that, through transportation. Can you talk about the Pew family and how they kind of moved into Texas and, and their variation of uh, Christianity? For sure. And uh, back to my earlier point, you know, how to keep this sprawling kind of narrative together and, uh, you know, uh, emphasizing kind of these two warring parties as one way, but also just kind of focusing on the life and generations of, of, of particular families. The Rockefellers through four generations provide kind of one of those paths forward for me when I'm trying to describe the majors and what I call the civil religion of crude that they represent. Uh, on the other side of it, it's families like the Stewarts and the Pews, especially. Uh, the Stewart family, Lyman Stewart, is worth mentioning. Uh, here's a man who was uh, in the oil business in Pennsylvania. He grew up nearby Titusville, uh, where oil was first discovered in Western Pennsylvania. And uh, a devout Presbyterian, devout evangelical Presbyterian, kind of radically orthodox, if you will. And, uh, you know, he saw his work in oil as directly influencing his work for the church. He wanted to be a missionary at one point, decided against that, thought, you know what, I can make a lot of money in oil and use that for the service of the church. Uh, and uh, he is driven out of uh, Pennsylvania by the Rockefellers, almost uh, completely, uh, his business almost completely collapses. And so where does he go? He goes to Southern California and he will be uh, one of the most prominent oilmen will start Union Oil, uh, which might sound familiar to your listeners. 
uh, and that will become really the only serious competitor to the standard oil machine in California in the early 20th century. Uh, and he will indeed pour his funds into conservative Protestant causes, whether they be missionaries in China or Peru, uh, or building his own Bible school, Biola, which still exists. In right, California. very prominent here in Southern California. Yeah, and uh, of course, that's all Stuart money. And he will also build uh, Church of the Open Door, which will become uh, really the most important independent tabernacle of the West Coast. So that's one family. Your mention of the pews, and with the pews, we really can walk through generations, again, of this family. Uh, J. Howard Pugh's father, uh, Joseph Pugh, uh, starts his oil company, actually oil and natural gas in Pennsylvania, but again, is driven to submission by the Rockefellers, uh, angered by that uh, for the rest of their existence. The Pugh family will hate the Rockefellers with a passion, and they will do all they can, both in politics and the church and in the oil industry, to... Uh, to attack the Rockefellers and to try to fight back. Uh, really the leader of this clan will be J. Howard Pugh, that's the son, and, uh, and his brother, Joseph uh, Pugh, who will become a very prominent Republican politician. Uh, Texas, how does that factor in here, briefly? Well, uh, the Pews will be among the first on the ground in Spindletop near Beaumont, Texas uh, in 1900-1901. Uh, so even though that their company is based in Delaware, Marcus Hook, around Philadelphia, uh, they see the West as opening up for the independents. And they're going to be there uh, before most companies. And as a result, their company, Sun Oil or Sunoco, uh, is going to really gain a foothold in Texas. And that is going to be the lifeline for a broken company. Uh, and that company is going to rise to mid-major status through the mid-20th century. And by the 1940s and 50s, J. Howard Pugh will use that, uh, those profits uh, to fund some of the most important kind of Protestant institutions in America in the late 20th century. So that, in a nutshell, happy to open that up some more. Right. And I mean, so the Pews have a rivalry with, the, with Rockefeller Standard Oil. Who did they use? Another person who came out of this whole um, situation in Pennsylvania was Tarbell and her daughter, who also very had a very, uh, I think, good Christian conscience in their sensibilities. Can you talk about the Pews and Ida Tarbell and what happened uh, with her? Her kind of uh, she was really one of the first muckraker rakers for independent journalism. Can you talk about her? Well, as I mentioned uh, for uh, to you just a bit earlier, I, I before we got on the air here, uh, Ida Tarbell turned out to be, I think really one of the most compelling characters uh, that I encountered. I had known a bit about her. Perhaps, uh, you know, if you go back to your high school textbooks, you might have a line or just brief mention of this muckraking journalist, part of a new culture of sensational journalism around the turn of the 20th century, which redefined journalism uh, by really using print media to stir up, to, to stir up the muck, uh, to stir up public sentiment against some of the worst uh, kind of excesses of American culture at that time, be they poverty, be they uh, attitudes towards immigrants, or in Ida Tarbell's case, be it towards big business and the power of monopolies like Standard to stamp out the little guy, to stamp out uh, those who wanted to be capitalists as well, but as a result of their lack of, of resources could not compete with, with the Standard Oils of the world. And so, uh, you know, she came to this 
hatred for Rockefeller and Standard uh, quite directly. Her father was, again, another small oil producer in Pennsylvania. She grew up in Titusville, part of a Methodist community there, very devout. And she saw her father quite literally brought to his knees by Rockefeller. In fact, uh, she writes uh, so passionately uh, with, you know, just distraught at seeing the, the physical features of her father deteriorate as he has to face bankruptcy and failure. Uh, that sticks with her. And as she becomes a journalist in the 1890s, she determines that she's going to fight back. And uh, again, wearing her faith on her sleeve, becomes more Quaker than Methodist, uh, sees the damage done to nature by capitalism, sees the damage done to humanity. Uh, and she attributes so much of that to John D. Rockefeller Sr., writes uh, an expose that first appears or that appears as article form, but then as the major book, History of Standard Oil in the 1900s. And that really stirs public sentiment against the Rockefellers. It also inspires political action, legislative action, legal action against Standard Oil. And in 1911, that's going to result in the uh, forced dismantling of the Standard Oil monopoly. So in many ways, Tarbell, uh, with her passions, her spiritual perspective, uh, and her talents is, is almost single-handedly going to bring down the largest company in the world. And it's a Christian cr critique as well. I think she writes also that uh, Rockefeller was emblematic of a hypocrisy that had crept into the Christianity of what she remembered. So she's seeing it through this this lens of uh, her Christian faith. Very much. Yeah, let me just add real quick to that. I, 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 you know, this is kind of a third way, a third path uh, through the history of oil and religion that I also try to highlight in, in addition to the sparring spirits of capitalism. And, and again, if we want to look at today, I, I just would emphasize that the spirit of Ida Tarbell and the ways in which her faith informed her environmentalism uh, is something that also uh, continues to operate in proximity to the oil industry and in opposition to it today. So, Right. So she kind of saw the independence as using oil for to make, I think she wrote the perfect man or something. So they're idealized. And then this, uh, you know, terrible uh, monopolist as John D. Rockefeller as really just the opposite of that. I mean, it was an interesting uh, vignette in your book where she actually goes to see Rockefeller at church. And I thought that was really important because it encapsulized those paradoxes of a church going guy, very goes a deacon every Sunday, and then just kind of ruthless, social Darwinistic business practices. Can you talk about her impressions of John D. Rockefeller and how that influenced her writing? She, yeah, no, that's a very powerful uh, moment that you just highlighted where she, she travels to Cleveland and she travels with one of the most famous uh, illustrators of the period. And again, this is all in the, for the purpose of publishing a, a, an expose article in uh, uh, McClure's magazine, I believe. Uh, in any case, so she goes to the to, to Rockefeller's church. And, you know, this is a gentleman who never missed a Sunday or Sunday school. He loved teaching it for 80 years of his life. Uh, so very serious about his faith. But in the, in the eyes of Tarbell, not just a hypocrite for the way he was doing damage to whether it be independent oilmen or just doing damage to capitalism and and humanity itself. Uh, you know, besides that, she also saw a very pathetic individual. Uh, she she actually remember, you know, she looks at his face and, you know, he had a skin condition. So, uh, you know, he wasn't the most handsome gentleman at that phase of his life. And and to her, he looked kind of like a lizard. He kind of looked 
you know, he embodied physically everything that was wrong. And uh, the illustrator who, who was with her captured that in a very famous image that I'm sure many of, of you would recognize. Uh, but point being is she, she was very passionate about her, 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 her hatred of the man, but also over the last stage of her career felt sorry for him too, uh, because despite his efforts to succeed at the highest levels, uh, he in fact had sold out his soul as far as she was concerned. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and you talk about in the book how so many of these oil figures, they weren't just looking at the U.S. They had really global ambitions for oil, but also their charities or their even. Uh, can you talk about their how that the global nature of oil came out of America? For sure. And, and you know, again, we as we move deeper into the 20th century, which is, uh, you know, the book covers in, in great detail, uh, you know, a couple of things just to, I think, keep in mind uh, what happens to American oil around the 1930s, 1940s. Well, uh, there is a fear of domestic reserves running out. One of the first but not the last fear of peak oil in America life. Uh, but, you know, considering the rise of a consumer economy, the need for gasoline, uh, the American federal government and major oil companies led by the standards, uh, you know, the offshoots of the original standard oil are going to start looking abroad. And, uh, you know, they're going to look to the Middle East, uh, they're going to look to the Near East, uh, and ultimately to Saudi Arabia. And so what I try to show in the book is how, from the get-go, whether it's into South America or into the Middle East or into Indonesia, there too, crude and Christianity are kind of wedded together. Uh, so, for instance, you know, one of the most uh, exciting discoveries for me was working in the British Petroleum Archives, which was hard to get into, but there, uh, through, you know, Kind of deep reading in, in, in primary resources just found how influential local missionaries were, for instance, in that region to uh, helping oil exploration map out uh, and ultimately succeed by the 1930s, 1940s uh, in, in creating a new infrastructure of global oil led by these American majors and, and also British Petroleum. Uh, and then I spend a good deal of time looking at Aramco, uh, the largest oil company, the largest company today and its roots, which also has, I think, some fascinating tie-ins uh, between faith uh, and the corporate sector. And, and I won't go into detail on that, but suffice to say, uh, I think if we wanna measure American global power uh, in the second half of the 20th century, we can see uh, oil, uh, big oil and big religion is kind of the twin pillars of American exceptionalism and of American enterprise abroad. Uh, anyway, does that uh, help answer your question there? I, maybe that's just a little, little tidbit, but, you know, finally, I'll just say this too. If, if we want to look at the opposite side of that, uh, the wildcatters, the small producers, the pews of the world in Sunoco are also going to pursue their own uh, crude uh, on an international scale, although they're always, uh, you know, kind of limited because of their more limited means. Uh, so where is Pew going to look? He's going to look to Alberta, in fact, and in the 1950s will become uh, the largest private investor in Canadian history uh, when he invests in uh, a fledgling company, the Great Canadian Oil Sands, uh, which we know today as being, of course, the Athabasca Oil Sands uh, and one of the largest oil reserves uh, on the planet. And it was J. Howard Pugh and Sunoco that really got that started in the 1950s. Right. So that's still relevant to today. Uh, Lee, do you mind taking a few questions? 
I got one right here. It's from Lee. He says, what, is, what do you think of the future of crude and natural gas and energy resources? For sure. Well, I, I, I always respond to questions like this that, uh, you know, I, I'm a historian, not a prophet. Uh, I'm much more comfortable in writing about things of the past. But of course, it's, it's uh, important for us to anticipate what, what happens next. And, uh, you know, I guess the, the book itself tries to just show how wedded we are to this resource, uh, oil. Now, of course, natural gas is part of that, although my focus was uh, much more just on, on oil itself, petroleum. Um, we are you know, dependent on this resource, not just for economic reasons. This isn't just a question of labor. It's not just a question of geopolitics. Uh, it is a question of our existence. It's existential. It's theological. So uh, for us to, as a society, to you know, anticipate alternatives, uh, embrace alternatives or detach perhaps somewhat from this industry, I argue is going to be, I think, more difficult than, than uh, people would imagine. And especially if you're looking at life on the oil patch, uh, we, we can't really uh, split these different sectors of life uh, apart. Uh, they are very much, uh, you know, kind of partners. So, Looking forward, I think oil, uh, the future of oil will continue to be uh, wedded to the future of this country and, and of our influence abroad. At the same time, I also see and anticipate more of kind of this entrepreneurial sphere witnessed in the early stages of the oil industry in this country as also being influential in, in anticipating next steps that might be uh, involving renewables or alternative uh, resources of, of fuel and so forth. So, uh, you know, I don't know if I probably doesn't answer your question completely. Uh, I, in general, see more of the same, uh, but also uh, potentials for uh, at least small corrections and shifts. But it is interesting how you, you just talked about kind of uh, the importance of oil and how almost religious uh, views toward black gold, sacralization of this resource. I think it was really interesting. And how many people use this evangelical, you know, this one variation of Christianity when they're searching for this this uh, anointment and how it, how much their faith was tied into finding or not finding or, or the results or everything. It was really fascinating. Uh, what can, else can people expect to find in the book when they when they find it? Some stuff that we haven't covered. We're about 35 minutes. Sure. Well, you know, I, we, we, we've talked quite a bit about kind of the first uh, – half of this story, the, the late 19th, early 20th, and, and for good reason, that really is the founding generation or two, uh, you know, dictating really the path forward, not just for this most powerful industry, an industry that, as I've emphasized, really uh, defines kind of the place of the United States on a global scale. Uh, but as we get to the second half of the story, and that's kind of the post-World War II period, uh, I think there are a lot of surprises. I would think for, for those readers uh, who might reimagine our recent politics through the lens of oil and religion. Uh, we, we think, for instance, in terms of the rise of the Republican Party along the southern rim of the country coming, you know, in response to uh, changes in the Democratic Party in the 1960s or, or Lyndon Johnson and civil rights or the economic growth of this region. Uh, I would argue, and, and I show in the book how some of the most important pivots uh, in the republicanization of the South happened because of the work of oil men and their allies in the church beginning in the 1950s over fights 
uh, about control of offshore oil, fights over who has jurisdiction, Washington or the states, uh, over oil exploration uh, in uncharted territories. And so energy, environment, religion, capitalism are all kind of uh, wound in this, this narrative of uh, sweeping political change with which I think we're still living with today uh, based on, again on these these regional differences. So that that I think would be one uh, exciting takeaway from those uh, for those who decide to uh, you know spend some time in the second half of the book. Great. And where's the best place for people to obtain anointed with oil? Uh, it you know it has been available in bookstores. I but I would assume right now Amazon or some online uh, bookseller would probably be uh, the best option. And do you have like uh, social media or website or anything if people want to reach out to you? Uh, I don't have social media uh, presence, and uh, but I certainly welcome and I always uh, enjoy receiving emails through my Notre Dame account. You know, ddochuk at nd.edu. Feel free to look me up on the history department site here at Notre Dame. And uh, that website will pro provide you with more information as well. So happy to uh, converse one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. Great. And also your new book is coming out 10 days. That title of that book is Religion and Politics Beyond the Culture Wars, New Directions in the Divided America. Sounds very timely. Again, the title of this one is Anointed with the Will, How Christianity and Crude Made Modern America by Dr. Darren Dochuk. Thank you so much, Darren. Thank you, William. All right, take care. Stay there. I'm going to turn this on. All right, that was perfect.